Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. We've had good responses to our discussions about farm machinery in this series. Gene Millard from KFEQ Radio and a sizable Missouri farmer talked about the advances in farm equipment of the 20th century in one episode. Kurt Blades of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers talked about the current situation on tractor sales and projections of the machines of tomorrow, especially whether they're going to be diesel or electric powered or some other type of power plant. Russ Green has worked for four major players in the ag equipment industry since his start in 1975. And to prepare you for what he might tell us, Russ was on the management team for the first axle flow combine for the Magnum tractor and for the quad tracks you see today under quite a number of machines. He worked for Agco as Fent came forth with a new combine. He worked for Kloss on combines. Russ, you've worked for four different companies and three of them twice. So I guess we'll sort that out. How are you today? Well, I'm good. You almost make it sound like I can't keep a job. <laughs> well, you're the one that put down, you went back to a company you had worked for three different times. Yeah, you know, I uh, I fell in love with agriculture, and fortunately, I had some companies that employed me and and liked what I did. And uh, I, I have a say saying, Ken, that you you go where you're invited and you stay where you're appreciated. Mm -hmm. And each of these companies gave me the invitation to work with them and for them. Uh, in the first chapter, and the first chapter of that book, in my first. 10 years, I worked for uh, uh, the major brand in all of agriculture, the International Harvester. But then I worked for two German and one Japanese company in a matter of 12 years. So uh, it's I got a chance to see agriculture on a very, very big scale, fell in love with it, and uh, started a career that I continue today. Well, now, International Harvester and then two German companies, I think it, one of those was Fint. Who was the other one? Well, I, the first one was Kloss. Uh, Helmut, Helmut Kloss asked me to join his business in, in the early 80s after an eight-year stint with International Harvester that took me to Chicago. And one of the impetuses there was that I had a, in the late 1979, I had a 17% house mortgage in Chicago. Mm -hmm. yep. Starting a young family and I needed to grow economically. So I got a chance to go with Kloss in the early 80s after four years there and our strategy didn't work as we planned it, I went to work in California with Kubota, so the Japanese company. Okay. And then my love affair with Iowa brought me back to the Midwest with Deutz Alice after the Deutz company had purchased the, uh, the resources and the, uh, the enterprise of Alice Chalmers. So those were the first four companies. And I, I did that. Uh, I guess the position I was in was probably 32, 33 years old. The Deutz company uh, was changing management to uh, Bob Ratliff, and Bob and I were close friends, and Bob moved the company from the Midwest to Atlanta, and I had a boy that was a high school senior at that time, wasn't that excited to move away from the Midwest, and uh, 
pivoted back to, to CNH in 1990, and that was uh, the dance through the through the companies the second time. Bob Ratliff, I remember him. He came through and did the show with me on AgriTalk and had taken Agco's stock way up. He was a darling of Wall Street at that time. Well, he should be. He should be. He was very innovative. In the first 20 years of Agco, after Bob went public with the company in 1990, they purchased 42 companies, 42 companies in 20 years. And you can imagine it, and we can talk at length about which of those brands and which of those companies stand today as pillars of the Agco company. But Bob gave up his chair on the board to Martin Rickenhagen. And in the last two years, Mr. Rickenhagen has retired and the new chair of that group, uh, Eric Hansodia. So it's gone through, in 30 years, three CEOs. And it's a company that's on the move. I could speak at length about Agco. Well, Agco, uh, if we can talk even about these other companies that came into it, because they're very near and dear to many of us. I remember Heston, and Heston became an Agco company, right? They very well did. Heston is were. the reason that yeah, Heston's the reason that Agco takes a dominant position in what we what we call the commercial hay business. The large square mm-hmm. balers, the self-propelled wind rowers, that work that gets done west of Kansas City. Heston and Heston by Massey, uh, the Agco brands are very dominant. And then I remember another one that was Ag Kim Equipment Company. Uh, Al McQuinn was the uh, founder of that, and uh, they're up in Jackson, Minnesota. And that company was dominating the spray rigs at the time, and uh, and they sold Agco, didn't they? Great memory, great memory. Though, if you go back, you know, if there were forty-two companies, the ones really of significance today, kind of in order of dating, would have been uh, the White Credit Company from White Tractors, Massey Ferguson, Fent, Challenger from from the Caterpillar distribution, AgChem, as you mentioned, and then GSI, uh, the storage and the protein business with with, uh, the GSI Corporation out of uh, Decatur, Illinois. And then most recently, probably most of significance, is the Precision Planting Group out of Tremont, Illinois. And those are probably the pillars of technology and the pillars of, of history that make up the Agco brand today. Well, now speaking of that precision planting, that company was dominating the variable rate seeding and John Deere was going to buy them. And that's one of the few cases I've seen where the federal government said, no, you can't buy them. You've got too much of the industry if you do. And apparently that's how Agco got them. That's right, that's right. They were number two in line. Uh, John Deere, uh, Greg Souter, the founder, sold that business to Monsanto, and Monsanto included it in their Climate Corp field view portfolio, and they were going to take the data and, and manage the data. Then they decided that I think maybe the Monsanto bear thing might have gotten in the way a little bit, being in a, a business with uh, capital goods probably got in the way a little bit. And John Deere stepped in and offered a, a number to Monsanto to acquire Precision. And you're exactly right. Uh, the government FTC stepped in and said, no, that would be too monopolistic. And that gave Agco their chance to move in. And 
You cannot be a corn or soybean producer from Denver to Pittsburgh and not have a knowledge of precision planning and their 2020 seed sense monitor and all of the things they do. It's probably one of the most logical, technical, innovative companies on the planet, and they're farmer friendly. Uh, they take a lot of advice from the producer and they hand back to them what they want in a new technological way. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that propels AgCo going forward into the future because it, it, it allowed the company to take a leapfrog and really to jump forward in technology that would have taken them decades to develop themselves. My guest is Russ Green. And when I was kicking around with some friends, uh, you know, people to talk to, they said he's an encyclopedia on the agriculture machinery industry. And uh, I truly, you are. So I, I want to ask you one thing about these machinery companies merging, though, in your own gut feel from where you stand today. We've had so many mergers that we come from so many beloved brands down to just a few. How does that set with you? Well, consolidation in the industries is inevitable. And, and I think uh, if you return if you return a value to your client or your customer, you're going to survive. And <clears throat> I use a kind of a three S approach. Ken, I think you got to be, got to be secure. You got to be stable and you got to be sustainable. And uh, if your product is a secure product and it has quality and, and delivers a value, if you have stability and you can continue that, you, you've seen so many of these mergers, as I said, Agco had 42 mergers, and here we're talking about six or eight of their brands that have continued. You know, you probably remember the Black Planter out of uh, uh, Vinton, Iowa. You, there's other products that, that had a brand name to them, but the scale and size and innovation technology of agriculture changed, and they weren't stable and sustainable. Acquiring a company is one thing. Being able to integrate the DNA and bring those two companies together and make well is another. And you're right. If you take a look at the major agricultural company on the planet, John Deere, they've made fewer acquisitions and they go to market with one brand. And uh, it's, a, it's a little bit more internal and organic as opposed to growth by acquisition. But whether it's Agco, whether it's CNH, uh, those companies tend to have uh, an acquiring mentality rather than an internal development mentality. You know, you say that about deer, but I was down at their uh, pavilion that they have uh, in Moline, Illinois, that has a history of deer and everybody can walk through it. They've got a little retail place there. Just for kicks, I said to this lady, what's the most expensive thing I could buy in here? And she said, well, it's this medallion. She said, this medallion came out from deer somewhere around 1900. And I said, well, what's unique about it? And it was about two inches, almost like a, a campaign pen, really. And she said, well, you see those little circles around that? There's 20 of them. And those are the companies that deer had bought before the beginning of the 20th century. So what you're saying, and you know, we go back to the Waterloo boy, for example, is one of those that happened after the beginning of the 20th century. These big companies bought up other companies and just rolled them under their umbrella. No doubt, no doubt, that's tr that's that's true. Because think of the 
think of the innovation in you know in the 1900s or, or earlier. Uh, you know, the harvesting machines, you know, it was a, a cottage enterprise. Wherever you had water power and someone who had a forge and a uh, maybe later a gas axe in Kansas or Iowa, you know, you made a piece of tillage or, or you made something that broke the soil or you may have made something that helped you to harvest in a still with animal power, probably before mechanization, but there were a number of small companies out there. Uh, J.I. Case, Jerome Increase Case, on the Root River in Racine, Wisconsin, before he was acquired by Tenneco, uh, or that corporation built into Tenneco, you know, was a was a harvesting company in and of themselves. So, exactly right. And in fact, uh, we talk about this. We're not going to stop that. It's going to continue. There's going to be continued consolidation. There's going to be continued, but I I do believe that the Trump the Trump card of the future will be distribution. Uh, you you can have an innovative product, but you got to find a way to get it on the farmstead. You got to get it past the farm gate, and and that that distribution is not going to be the same as we've seen it in the past. We've seen extraordinary consolidation in the agricultural distribution. And, and I think that will continue. Probably John Deere has led the way with that consolidation. I think you're not a big John Deere dealer today unless you have 12 locations, 12 rooftops. And uh, 95% of the John Deere corporations uh, have five locations or more. Well, Russ, one of the things that Agco did was to buy these brands. And then it appeared to me they made... Uh, a tractor, kind of like an X car, that all of the tractors were the same, but they painted them different colors and put the old names back on them. Is that really how it happened? Well, it, historically, yes, you're correct, and that was a that was a quick action to try and satisfy and keep as much distribution as possible. But what it's evolved to today, and again, I don't want this to become a commercial for Agco, but if you take a look at the Agco tractor brands today. And there's primarily three. There's Fent, there's Massey Ferguson, and there's Voltra. And the two that they market in North America are Fent and Massey Ferguson. So even the legacy or historical Challenger brands that were built by Caterpillar in Jackson, or pardon me, actually built by Caterpillar in Aurora, Illinois, then later transitioned to Jackson, Minnesota, where Ag Kim had their factory for application equipment. Those products today are sold under the Fent brand and uh, that dual track technology. It took a while, probably longer than it should have, for the Fent to be designed into a true North American 60-inch row crop tractor. In other words, have the dimensions exact that they could compete with the domestic North American row crop tractor. But now that they have, that competition is robust. The Massey tractor is for everyone. And Massey has tractors uh, down into the lower horsepowers provided by a relationship with a Zeki and all the way up into the highest row cropping uh, horsepowers for those customers that want to follow the Massey history and the Massey brand. So there's kind of a, a, a dual approach in North America with Massey and Fent, whereas in the balance of the world, predominantly in, in the Scandinavian countries and, and in South America, the Vulture brand is a, is a brand of choice 
with certain producers. So what Agco will do, intends to do, is to leverage and meet the customer where they want to be met with one of those three tractor brands. Can I ask you one more thing about Finn? And I'm getting out to the edge of my abilities here. But as I recall, you know, when Finn came in, it's a light green tractor. People said, well, there's another green tractor on the market out there, but it just can't be as good as a deer. <laughs> and then some people said, you know, they've got a uh, hydrostatic or a transmission system that is uh, is innovative and is new and other things as well and creature comforts. And pretty soon people were saying it was the best tractor on the market. I don't think too many domestic manufacturers of tractors want to go in the field and compare themselves to a fent. Just like Cadillac doesn't want to go on the roadway and compare themselves to a Mercedes or an Audi or a Volvo, European technology in the agricultural market is pretty stout. And uh, a fent tractor, just like a Kloss combine, is as close to an anvil as you can build. So I'm, I'm showing a bit of a bias here in my statements, but uh, that's kind of a feeling I've developed with real-world experience. Okay, this question then, off the wall. What about the Bolaris tractors, the cheap ones that came in from Eastern Europe, beginning, I think, in the 80s? Yeah, I come oh. back to my three S's. I'll go back to my three S's, Ken. Uh, Eastern European built tractor in the in the area of probably very close to where we're fighting a uh, international war today. Uh, Russian built tractor, uh, not nearly as sophisticated, uh, probably a a spur gear type transmission. Uh, was it secure? Possibly. Was it stable? Not really. Was it sustainable? Not at all. Valeris measured the amount of parts they had to support their tractor in America by weight. They weighed the tractors they had at port in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and that's the amount of parts they had. So there just wasn't a stability built up for that tractor. It was probably a number of them sold in Eastern Europe in big quantities, but the mentality in Eastern Europe, they don't repair products. When the product fails, they push it to the roadside and bring in another one. There's just not a repair mentality like exists with uh, the North American agricultural environment. Well, I just um, reinstated a documentary that I shot in 1986 in the Soviet Union and yep. uh, put it up a week ago. And we had a machinery dealer, an IH machinery dealer from uh, St. Joe, Missouri, who went with us. And every time we would find machinery, he would disappear because he would crawl under it. He said, you can't see anything from the, all the fairings on the outside. And he'd come out and he'd say, oh, my gosh, there's wooden bushings under here. The technology is just crap. And then I remember that they had a tractor on display in Moscow, and the paint was already coming off of it, and yet the tires showed that the little uh, tips sticking out of the rubber were brand new. So their manufacturing must have been uh, unsustainable. Yeah, I would say it's in and out. I, I haven't seen a Bolaris tractor on an event for ages. And uh, quite candidly, the uh, Pacific Rim tractors with uh, whether it be LS uh, or obviously Kubota, Yanmar, uh, the, the tractors from the Pacific Rim have taken over and maybe for that price conscious and entry level customer, 
but today the uh, the expectations are too high. The expectations for durability and longevity of parts availability are too high for a product of Bolaris's quality to take much traction. I was at the Farm Progress show back at the beginning of September and uh, went over to Kubota. And I was amazed at the uh, breadth of uh, equipment they have. I said, you know, when Walt Garrison was your spokesperson, he was larger than the tractor. And now the tractors are big, but not only that, they have everything imaginable. It looks like they're going after Bobcat as much as anybody else on the amount of of uh, equipment that they have that goes on the front or goes on to their machines. I know you work for Kubota, but what's your thinking of their positioning in the market today? You're making me smile. You're making me smile. Extremely committed society of Japanese came to North America under a dimming model of the 5S model of uh, quality assurance. They started in an area that the arrogance of the North American manufacturers, whether it was Henry Ford, whether it was uh, John Deere, whether it was Internet, they didn't want anything to do with that tractor under 25 horsepower with a three-point hitch and a PTO and all of the same characteristics of a 100-horsepower tractor. So Kubota got its start in the late 60s, 69, 70. And I can recall our salesmen were required to have a bumper hitch on their vehicle and a trailer. And they'd put two tractors on a trailer and they'd drive away from the warehouse and they were done selling when they sold their two tractors and they came back and got two more. And every time we signed up a dealer and to sign up a Ford tractor dealer was a, a bell ringer day at Kubota. Today, Kubota has expanded out their product line throughout the tractor industry is as exhaustive as anyone up until about 160 horsepower when they then have a relationship with Versatile out of Manitoba to build their large, what I call their large plus 180 horsepower tractors are built in a, in a, uh, in concert with Versatile. And they've got a big egg strategy. They acquired the Cavernland company of Europe for their hay tools, both small and large hay tools. And they've acquired the Great Plains company uh, from Roy Applequist and his family and initially, they did that for all of those auxiliary attachments, scaffires and mowers and, and blades. But they also have the, the Great Plains uh, seating and tillage products at their disposal as well. So Kubota is growing upward. and They're celebrating their 50th year in North America next month in Dallas, Texas. And they will attract a large crowd of very successful, well-capitalized dealers. And likewise, Kubota dealers today, it, it isn't necessarily a, a mother and father operation. It's they're very sophisticated, very professional. It's not uncommon for a Kubota dealer to have four or five Kubota locations. And they serve two markets. They serve what I would call the, the low to mid-range agricultural market. And they serve the light industrial market with their... In 1987, I submitted to Gaboda a business plan to get in the skid steer tractor business, skid steer tractors. Mm -hmm. Well, 20 years later, in 2007, 20 years, they enacted that plan. And today they have over 28% market share in what's called the track loader business, 
or skid steers. You can't go to an industrial site in Lexington, Kentucky, and not see a Kubota track skid steer working in North America. Or in, in like I said, if you circle Lexington, Kentucky, the horse farms are are using Kubota tractors and batwing mowers, and the industrialists are using hydraulic excavators and track loaders from Kubota. Russ Green is my guest, and uh, I'm delighted to talk to you about these tractors. I didn't realize we would get so deep into things because of your cross-section of knowledge of them and the companies that you have worked for, and I do appreciate that. I wanted to not necessarily finish with this, but to ask you about another area, because it seems to me that combines are the center of the earth for you. Every time I have met you at a Farm Progress show, you have been standing there by the combines waiting to take people on a tour of them. And I recall the Kloss combine, I think, was the last one. And you even called it something that the pheasants uh, forever people wouldn't appreciate. I think you called it a pheasant killer or a pheasant. It would starve pheasants to death because it would harvest the grain so completely. What is it about combines that you like so much? You got to remember, I started my career as a school teacher. I was not from a farm. Uh, you know, I had to be reminded that the on a tractor, the big tires are in the back and the small tires are in the front, or at least that's the way it used to be. But I was adopted by the uh, Axial Flow Combine team in Davenport or the Quad Cities in the mid-70s. And the very first product we launched was the Axial Flow Combine. We toasted champagne and champagne in 1976. Jim Minahan, Camille Beard, Jerry Salzman, they adopted me. And you got to remember, a combine, a combine has to do everything a tractor does, plus harvest grain. So the technology in a combine is pretty intricate and uh, complex. And the axial flow combine started a revolution. Actually, it was the second rotary combine. The New Holland Company had their twin rotor out a year before the axial flow, and that's because an engineer jumped ship and went from the red company to the yellow company, another story. But as I said earlier, the, the combine is the only product in the agricultural portfolio that has a holiday named after it, and that's Thanksgiving. At Thanksgiving yeah. time, 95% of the harvest for North America is completed. And Thanksgiving is the time when we give thanks for a bountiful harvest, uh, a successful harvest, the grain is in the bin. There isn't anything more fun than sitting on the tailgate of a pickup truck in a freshly harvested field and celebrating with a producer a job well done. It's important to plant it. It's important to fertilize it. It's important to protect it. But until you harvest the crop, the money's not in the bank. And that harvest means so much. So, yeah. And I think Helmut Kloss probably injected me with that love affair as well. When I left International Harvester and, and went to the Kloss company, uh, no more devoted family company to the business of harvesting than the than the Kloss family. So yeah, I have a love affair for combines, but at the same time, the hardest piece of equipment to pry away from a dedicated owner is their combine because they usually have thirty-five or forty thousand dollars worth of spare parts in their shop that are there to put on that combine. And most good combine operators know when a combine is going to fail by the vibration they feel from the seat of the combine. They know which bearing, which belt, which shaft is going to fail, and they probably have a replacement shaft or part in the barn. 
I find it interesting now that these combines have gotten so large that they've caused everything else to have to change. And my wife has said to me, why are these farmers putting up these big bins? And I said, well, it's not just the bins. It's the ability to bring a truck in and dump that truck in seconds so you can get back to the field to haul the grain out because the combine is cutting so much so fast that you hardly can keep up with it, depending on how far you have to travel, with two, three, or even four trucks. I think the new buzzword in grain harvesting, Ken, is balance. And you've got to balance your productivity from the, from the tip of the combine corn head to the, uh, the dump of the grain out of the dryer into the storage bin. It doesn't do you any good to have a 6,000 bushel an hour combine when you've got a 2,000 bushel per hour grain dryer mm-hmm. or the logistics of moving, like you said. Look at the size of these grain carts. Uh, it's not uncommon today to have a, a, a 1,200 bushel grain cart, which is usually about three loads of a combine's grain tank and uh, the compaction caused both by that bigger combine, heavier combine, bigger grain cart. I personally think we've kind of hit the end of the horsepower cycle and the the size cycle. We've got 60-foot grain tables today. You know, where do you go with a used 60-foot grain table or a used class 11 combine? I I think there's going to be a lot more calculation of return on investment and you might see the customer who thinks they need a class 9, 10, 11 combine having two class 7 combines versus uh, the large machines that when one combine goes down, and it's not if they will fail, it's when they will fail. There'll be a problem that will take you out of your harvest. At least you have a crew still working if you own multiple combines. So that's a bias that I have. Uh, I've been part of the development of class 11 combines and they are very, very, very productive, but they are, they're also pretty difficult to sell in the, in the resale used market. Well, Russ, let me ask you this about the future. Now that you are heading that way, what's your prediction for this intersection of uh, technology, uh, part of it, artificial intelligence and uh, the next generation of farm machinery? Do you think it'll be a radical departure from the large, expensive machines we have today? I think it's going to be a retraction. You've probably heard the term leader follower. Uh, you know, farm labor workforce is, is going to be difficult. An educated workforce to be able to handle the technology of some of these machines. You, you can talk about autonomy or automation. I I believe in automation. I think technology and innovation will take decisions away from the operator and take them to the machine, but I'm not necessarily a fully autonomous guy. Uh, I I do work with companies. I have some colleagues that are fully autonomous, but those machines are going to be smaller. They're going to be operated in, in swarms or fleets. They need to be used. Maybe, maybe you have a customer that needs two four-row planters, and those four-row planters plant their soybean field 24-7, and you trust that to be done. They've got to be mobile. You've got to be able to, uh, to load them and move them from place to place very efficiently. In my new company and my work I do with Mac, uh, Machinery Advisors, we use four words. We talk about 
connected, collaborative, agile, and digital. And we talk about dealers being that way, but the machinery is going to be that way as well. Machinery is going to be connected. Original equipment manufacturer, retailer, value chain dealer is going to know when a machine has a difficulty, oftentimes before the customer knows it. So they're going to be connected. Machines are going to talk to each other. They're going to be collaborative, just like the dealer, the customer, and the machine. They're going to be. They're going to talk to each other. They got to be agile, so they can deal with different scale and different sizes. And they're certainly going to be digital. The you know the way we communicate today is electronically, frequently, small sound bites, and so so those four terms: connected, collaborative, agile, and digital are very important. I think in the future of agriculture and. And let's face it, we, we need the technology. If, if we're going to feed more people on the planet, we're slowing our growth. We're slowing our population somewhat. But and you, while you and I talk, Ken, in this half hour time, over 90 acres of land has gone out of productivity in North America. 175 acres an hour. That's huge. And if we don't find ways to be more productive with the land that we do have, I've got a firm 90 miles away from Lexington, Kentucky, named App Harvest. App Harvest is, 100, is 60 acres of uh, salad under roof. They will harvest over 22,000 tons of beef stock tomatoes out of that facility. And if you draw a circle around Moorhead, Kentucky, it's 12 hours to New York. It's seven hours uh, to Atlanta, nine hours. can You know, you could take anything you put in the salad can be raised under roof. So you're going to hear about vertical agriculture. So all of this needs technology. Uh, I think that leadership and technology will be the force multipliers of our industry going forward. We've got to have leaders that understand how to manage businesses. We're going to need technology in those businesses so that we can feed the people we need to feed. Russ, a question that's maybe philosophical here, but in front of us, it appears to me, is what power plant are these machines going to use? And um, I talked to Kurt Blades a while back with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, and he says diesel has to remain the major power plant. It can't just go to electric uh, or or others. Uh, What do you think? And Will the environmental policies of our government impact agriculture if we can't use traditional power plants? For sure it will. Regulatory issues are always going to be in front of us. We always have to be, even the tier four engine, the compliance, the the air coming out of a tier four engine today is cleaner than the air that goes in it. So we've been compliant to make those power plants scrubbers, if you will. And, And there'll be other compliance that are necessary. I, I agree. I agree with Kurt that we're going to, you know, for the next foreseeable, I, I, I look at the agricultural world in generations. Uh, my wife comes off of a sixth generation farm. I'm working with millennials or the next generation of ag leaders. We will drive new technology, whether it's powered by electronics and a battery. We got to serve the longevity and the durability and the displacement answers about a battery. It could be hydrogen. There could be a hydrogen solution. I know that almost all of the engine manufacturers, Cummins and Deutz and Agco, they're all working on a, a hydrogen solution. It will be different. It will be more environmentally friendly. 
Uh, but diesel will be here. The, the diesel combustion engine will be here for some number of, of years, at least through the generation. And we've got to solve the issue of, of the repowering. In other words, you know, it's not uncommon for a combine to run 20 hours a day. And it is uncommon to find a battery that will work more than six hours a day. And there's not too many producers that are going to stop and use a third of their day to charge their battery to go back out into the field. So they got to look at that, that sentiment of practicality. EV, electronic vehicles are here to stay, but we got to find a way to make them in a new technological form that we currently understand. Russ Green, a delight, absolutely, to talk to you and to hear your perspective and your historical knowledge of the ag equipment industry. You started in 1975. You seem to be going strong today. May I ask you finally uh, what you're now doing to keep yourself occupied and involved in agriculture and your industry? This is the best question of the day. Ken, I'm walking down two streets. Uh, when I walked away from a W-2 in the fourth quarter of 2020, a COVID year, both I and my wife said, well, you're not going to stop. And I said, you're right, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to pay forward. And I've developed a group called McCabin. McCabin. McCabin was named after my first three grandchildren, Matt, Kaylee, and Ben. And McCabin is a group of 12 very bright agriculturalists. And, and I believe that we as agricultural mentors, we need to help the young and the next generation understand how ag and, and food is delivered. And we have the task of making sure the next generation has the same blessings that we have. So myself and 12 from Saskatchewan to Boston and Boston to Denver, I've got 12 young people that are second, third, or fourth generations in their parents' or grandparents' business. We meet the third Wednesday of every month, and we talk about problems that they see, solutions that they may have made. And I've got agronomists, I've got producers, I've got ag retailers. You know Sarah Wyant. You probably know Sarah quite well. Her son, Jason Lutz, is one of my millennials in this group. Jason someday will be the next Sarah Wyant. I've got a young man in Minnesota called the Minnesota Millennial Farmer, Zach Johnson. Every time Zach and Becky Johnson make a video of their farm operation, the next day, 350,000 people have watched in 24 hours. They have a following of over 850,000 subscribers to YouTube. Who does that? I mean, that's just crazy. So McCabin is the next generation of ag leaders. And then I work with an old friend, a very trusted friend, George Russell. And we have a group called MAC, the Machinery Advisory Consortium. And we advise 52 agricultural corporations that have over 280 storefronts or rooftops in agriculture and machinery distribution. So we have peer groups. And so I've not stopped. I, I enjoy this industry so much. I enjoy the technology and the vigor and the leadership. I've had the benefit of great mentors like Bob Ratliff and Helmut Kloss, Jim Irwin. You may remember Jim, mm -hmm. but just like your industry, there's people out there that have given everything they've got to make sure that the business is better off when they leave than when they arrived. Well, Russ Green, what a delight to talk to you and to feel the enthusiasm you have not only for the industry you've been in, but for the future and for these young people. And I uh, really salute you for that. And I hope that that gives you uh, greater strength and uh, uh, sustainability 
and that you keep that power plant of yours running strong, and we'll just see what happens with you in the years ahead. Can't wait till I touch your nose again. I got to get back together face to face. The world's uh, world's too small, but you know, in agriculture, we don't have six you know stages of difference or separation. It's it's closer than that. It's about two degrees of separation. You ask two questions, you probably find somebody in agriculture you know. I'll look forward to doing so. Thank you again for being with us. All right. Thank you, Ken. It was great. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.